Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of terrorist attacks, gore, and murder. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. It was the 4th of July, 1940, but Lieutenant James Pike wasn't roasting hot dogs and burgers with his family. He was on his way to the New York World's Fair, There'd been a bomb threat. The lieutenant turned toward a field where his detectives were investigating a suspicious package. That's when he realized this was no idle threat. In the distance, smoke filled the air. Once Pike got close enough, he pulled the car to the curb and leaped out. He covered his mouth to block the smell of ash, scorched wood, and worst of all, burning flesh. As he stomped over the grass, what he saw was more horrible than he could have ever imagined. Five police officers crawled along the ground, their mangled legs dragging behind them. Not far away, two other bomb squad detectives lay in the grass, their bodies ripped apart by the explosion. Pike recognized their faces. They were his friends. In fact, he had ordered these men there himself. No matter what his emotions were, this was part of the job, and the other policemen were looking at him to lead. He told a few nearby officers to put on gloves and start collecting evidence. Someone had attacked New York City, and Pike was going to track them down. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the New York World's Fair bombing. During the tense start of World War II, more than 60 countries put on a glamorous exhibition full of hope. But in 1940, a terrorist attack killed two detectives and maimed several others. And the culprit has remained a mystery since. Today, we'll explore the numerous bomb threats that plagued the fair and the one deadly package that, on July 4th, turned out to be real. Then, we'll follow the police commissioner as he hunts down the unknown perpetrator. Next time, we'll try to figure out who committed the attack. Perhaps it was a Nazi plot to destroy the British pavilion. Or maybe it was planted by an English secret agent who later became the real-life inspiration for James Bond. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. For the past 80 years, the American unemployment rate has stayed fairly low. But during the Great Depression of the 1930s, more than one-fifth of American workers were jobless. Factories closed, businesses shut down, and breadlines stretched around the block. In the U.S., more than 12 million found themselves out of work. The future looked bleak for the United States and the world. But economic struggles were far from the only problem. In 1938 Europe, Tensions between Nazi Germany and its neighboring countries were at a fever pitch. Adolf Hitler seized control of the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, and there was no telling what he would take next. Most Americans opposed the Nazis, but a small minority of German sympathizers actually backed Hitler. They joined pro-Nazi organizations like the German-American Bund. This group, made up of former German citizens and people with German ancestry, often marched in the streets, waving swastika flags and spouting anti-Semitic rhetoric. At these rallies, the tension between the Bund and other Americans felt like a powder keg that could explode at any moment. Someone had to maintain order, and much of that responsibility fell to the officers in the New York Bomb and Forgery Squad, Detectives like Freddie Socha and Joe Lynch. Socha had New York City in his blood. The 35-year-old grew up in Brooklyn and went to school at Columbia University. Originally, he dreamed of becoming a doctor, but when the Depression hit, he gave it up for a career in law enforcement. He wasn't the most intimidating detective on the force. He had a round face, a receding hairline, and stood a few inches shorter than most other officers. But he didn't let his diminutive appearance stop him. On raids, he frequently took down men twice his size. In fact, it was his fearlessness that got the attention of Lieutenant James Pike, who appointed him to the bomb squad. With hard work, Socha hoped to eventually make detective first grade. Unlike Socha, Joe Lynch looked the part of a golden boy detective. The 33-year-old had a striking jawline that made people think he was a Hollywood actor, not a police officer. On the clock, Lynch showed calm under pressure and utter devotion to the job. And he had good reason to. He was gunning for a raise. His eldest daughter, Essie, had a bone infection that had caused her pain for months. If he got promoted to detective first grade, that money would go straight to Essie's hospital bills and she'd stand a fighting chance of beating the illness. 
But not everyone was happy with this plan. Lynch's wife, Easter, was terrified something awful would happen to him during one of his bomb investigations. Lynch assured her if he just stuck it out, he could transfer out of the unit and cool her anxieties. United in their ambitions, Lynch and Socha became close friends at the office. They spent most days in the bomb and forgery squad doing mundane work, pouring through paperwork, searching for fake signatures, or hunting down phony one-cent cigarette stamps. Despite the tediousness of the job, they knew it was better to be bored than spend the afternoon defusing a bomb. However, in February 1939, Lynch and Socha moved out of the filing room and into the fray. The German-American Bund planned to hold a rally at Madison Square Garden. More than 20,000 Nazi supporters would attend, making it a prime target for anybody wanting to send a message. Sure enough, days before the rally, an anonymous letter to Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia's office claimed three time bombs would explode during the assembly if the meeting went ahead. Even though the victims would be Nazi sympathizers, the fallout would be disastrous for the city's image. But the mayor couldn't cancel the rally either, because it would have seemed like an attack on free speech. All LaGuardia could do was mitigate the risk. He contacted the police and bomb squad and told them to comb the garden from top to bottom. Lieutenant Pike dispatched Lynch and Socha to sweep every inch of the arena. Thankfully, nothing turned up. After days of tireless searches, they knew they'd done their jobs. On February 20th, the day of the rally, all they could do was hope they'd done them well. That night, thousands of Nazi supporters streamed into Madison Square Garden while 1,700 cops monitored the scene from outside. They kept their eyes and ears peeled for any disturbance. They didn't have to wait long. Around 8 p.m., about 16 blocks away, a pre-recorded voice blasted from a loudspeaker in a second-story apartment. It said to the Nazis, quote, Be American. Stay at home. Pike, Lynch, and Socha worried that the audio could be linked to an explosive, so they sprinted to the source. Guns drawn, the officers kicked in the door. They froze. An alarm clock sat in the middle of the room. At any moment, they expected its ticking to stop, trigger a bomb, and blow them all away. Fearing for their lives with every step, Lynch and Socha inched closer to inspect it. Then, the pair breathed a sigh of relief. The alarm clock had already gone off at 7.55, turning on the record player that played the recorded message. Thankfully, there was no explosive. Even though no one had been in actual danger, the paranoia around the Madison Square Garden rally demonstrated the tension in the city. After a decade of the Great Depression, people were anxious to put food on the table and pay their bills. Now, on top of that, they worried about the war overseas and the possibility the violence could end up at their doorsteps. With so much fear in the air, the city's leaders felt like they needed to act. Politicians wanted to boost morale, while business owners needed a way to stir up profits. 
Luckily, in 1939, the top businessmen and government officials of New York City had an idea that would accomplish both. A World's Fair. If all went according to plan, the fair would be a huge attraction for tourists. It would include pavilions dedicated to foreign countries, delicious street food, and fascinating futuristic exhibits. Its slogan, Dawn of a New Day. They chose Flushing Meadows in Queens, about 11 miles away from Manhattan for the site. Investors spent $150 million to create the park, about $3 billion in 2022. But it'd be worth it. They claimed the attraction would generate over $1 billion in business for New York City. So there was plenty riding on the fair's success by opening day. The morning of April 30th, 1939 was beautiful and sunny, perfect for the launch of New York's largest and most expensive attraction. Every newspaper in the city was dedicated to the fair. It was the place to be, and it felt like every person in New York was there. Crowds swarmed the entrance. To avoid a riot, officials let the mob through the turnstiles 45 minutes early. After throwing their money at World's Fair-branded souvenirs, visitors beelined to the Expo's signature monuments, the Trilon and Perisphere. Shaped like a spire, the Trilon Tower rose 610 feet, taller than the Washington Monument. It was even visible from downtown Manhattan. But the Perisphere was an even bigger attraction. This gigantic white globe was twice the size of Radio City Music Hall. To get in, crowds rode the world's longest electric escalator. Inside, they entered the world of democracy, an enormous diorama depicting a futuristic utopia. An industrial core city was surrounded by suburban satellite towns, all of which were linked by an intricate highway system. They'd never seen anything like it. From the farmer to the city dweller, everyone was connected. Democracy didn't just represent progress, it showed a planet at peace. Despite the violence in Europe, tourists experienced what the world could be. They marveled at perfumes, gowns, and rare art at the French Pavilion. And they learned about Polish democracy at the Poland installment. Because of the Nazis' annexation of the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia wasn't able to finish their pavilion. So fair officials completed it for them in a show of good faith and teamwork. That summer and into the fall, millions of people flocked to Flushing Meadows to take in the sights, including Joe Lynch and his partner, Freddie Socha. On October 2nd, the fair waived the 75-cent admission fee for policemen, so Socha and Lynch brought their whole families to the park. Socha let each of his kids pick out an exhibit, while Lynch dragged Essie and his other children to the Hall of Pharmacy. He wanted them to be as fascinated with drug manufacturing as he was. Essie marveled at a puppet show, a magic medicine cabinet, and a 20-foot-tall one-way mirror. At the drugstore of tomorrow, Lynch also treated his kids to ice cream sodas. For Socha and Lynch, the day was a much-needed respite from the hours of paperwork back at the station. And soon enough, they'd be back at the World's Fair for a second trip. But unfortunately for them, 
This time, they wouldn't be taking in the sights. They'd be attempting to defuse a bomb. Coming up, the World's Fair turns deadly. Hi, I'm Ashley Flowers, the creator and host of the true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. And you might remember me from a few podcast shows like Supernatural, International Infamy, or Very Presidential. I'm popping in to tell you about my new book that I think all of you true crime fans will not be able to put down. It's called All Good People Here, and it's officially out right now. It's a mystery about a journalist who returns to her small hometown and becomes obsessed with trying to solve a kidnapping that she thinks could be linked to a decades-old unsolved murder. It is full of twists and turns and will leave you on the edge of your seat until the very last page. Grab your copy of All Good People Here now, wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1939, New York City celebrated the opening of its first-ever World's Fair. People journeyed from across the planet to take in its vision of a utopian future. By its final weeks, more than 32 million guests had walked through the turnstiles. But in October, the World's Fair closed down for the winter. And the following year, the park's hopeful atmosphere was overshadowed by the war in Europe— and the violence threatened to spill over to the United States. The NYPD fielded thousands of bomb threats, warnings, and tips from across the city. Before, Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha had spent most of their shifts bent over a magnifying glass looking for forgeries. Now, they chased down phony leads and imaginary bombs. In one instance, they wasted hours in the harbor combing through a ship for a hidden explosive that never turned up. And they often had to crouch on their hands and knees to dig through the dirt. But no matter how many times they were called to search, there was never any bomb. The squad received over 400 leads a week, and Lieutenant James Pike refused to overlook a single one. Even if a thousand tips were wrong, He knew one real explosion could cost countless lives. They had to assume every call was real. As anti-Nazi sentiment grew across the U.S., many of the threats were aimed at the German-American Bund and other pro-Nazi organizations. Even though the United States hadn't yet entered the war, the tension was everywhere. In the newspapers, in posters on storefronts, and even at the World's Fair. In the first months of 1940, Hitler attacked Norway, Denmark, Luxembourg, and France, all of which had pavilions at the World's Fair. And Nazis had already invaded Poland, so Polish representatives draped their pavilion in a large black cloth in honor of their fallen people. Park leaders had hoped the fair's second season would be the greatest carnival the city had ever seen, but instead... It was home to sobering wartime demonstrations. 
In June, the nine allied nations at the fair gathered at the British Pavilion for a massive prayer service. These countries hoped for peace in Europe. They didn't expect New York to become a battleground of its very own. That same month, on June 20th, two bombs exploded in New York, shattering the illusion of safety. The first went off at the southern tip of Manhattan in the same building as the German Consulate General. The second detonated near Union Square at a building that housed a pro-Stalin newspaper and the headquarters of the Young Communist League. Authorities couldn't determine if the two attacks were connected. If so, it would mean the bombers targeted both Nazi and communist supporters, two distinctly different groups. Only a few victims sustained minor injuries, so police thought the bombers might not have wanted to kill anyone. It's possible they just wanted to get their attention. If so, it worked. The bomb and forgery squad was on high alert and citywide paranoia was at its peak. Detectives felt certain another bomb was coming, and this time it wouldn't be so small scale. The day after the two bombings, a caller threatened to blow up the Italian pavilion at the World's Fair. So Lynch and Socha hopped in their squad car and combed every inch of that building. Luckily, the location was clear. Still, Lieutenant Pike knew the park would be a prime target. It was heavily populated and filled with representatives from warring countries. If somebody wanted to wreak havoc, that would be the place to do it. So, Pike doubled the manpower at the World's Fair and ordered his detectives to make routine visits. Additionally, with the 4th of July weekend approaching, Pike told them to be on call. It didn't matter if they were going to a fireworks show or their in-laws' barbecue. He had to be able to reach them. The next bomb could go off at any moment. On July 1st, Marjorie Rosser, an operator at the British Pavilion, picked up the phone. The voice on the other end sounded muffled, but Rosser managed to make out a few words. They said, get out of the building. We're going to blow it up. Get everybody out before the box explodes. Before she could get any more information, the line went dead. Rosser's supervisor immediately notified Lieutenant Pike and his detectives, who drove to the park to examine the building. They searched every nook and cranny, but the British pavilion was empty. Pike assumed it was another false alarm and sent his men back home. However, two days later, on July 3rd, an electrician found a mysterious package in the fan room, a tan canvas bag up on a shelf. He thought it looked like a small overnight duffel and assumed one of his fellow employees had left it there by mistake. But when he came in the next day on the 4th of July, the bag was still there. At first he was confused, then he leaned in closer and heard a sound that sent shivers down his spine, ticking. Though it could have just been an alarm clock or even a radio, he didn't want to take any chances. The electrician picked up the bag and carried it to his bosses. Nobody wanted to touch it. They were afraid if they opened the satchel, it may explode. 
So they phoned the police, who forwarded the report to the bomb and forgery squad. While most of his friends were grilling with their families, Joe Lynch had largely spent his 4th of July studying for a detective exam. If he aced it, he'd finally be able to leave his dangerous position once and for all. Then the phone rang. Lynch had come to dread that sound. It almost always meant another bomb hunt. Sure enough, when he answered, Lieutenant Pike was on the other end. He told Lynch the park police had discovered a suspicious package and moved it to a field behind the Polish Pavilion restaurant. Pike told Lynch to get down to the fair at once and bring a partner. It was supposed to be Freddie Soch's day off, so Lynch called Peter Hayas, a seasoned member of the squad. But there was no answer. He didn't want to call Socha, but he had no choice. He picked up the phone and dialed. When Socha answered, Lynch told his partner the situation, and they agreed to meet at the fair. On the way out, Lynch told his wife he'd be back in an hour. That was about how long it took to examine a package, clear it, and come back home. Soon after, he met Socha at the fairgrounds. A group of officers greeted the pair at the field. As Lynch and Socha walked towards the package, they instructed everyone to step back so they could take a look. The pair crouched down to inspect the bag. They immediately heard the ticking. Lynch asked how long it had been making that sound. Though the electrician hadn't heard it the day before, the officers said the package had been in the pavilion for at least 30 hours. The bomb squad officers knew if the bomb was connected to an alarm clock, it would have gone off by then. The explosives were programmed to detonate when they hit a certain time. It had been more than 24 hours since the ticking started, so it should have hit its scheduled time at least once. Lynch and Socha discussed it. They both concluded it had to be a hoax. Still, there was only one way to be sure. Lynch took out his pocket knife and cut a hole in the bottom of the suitcase. Then, he and his partner took a deep breath, peered inside, and gasped. Coming up, the contents of the case. Now, back to the story. On July 4th, 1940, detectives Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha drove to the World's Fair to investigate a suspicious ticking bag. They'd been called in for dozens of fake bombs, and they thought this package would be no different. Still, they had to be sure. Lynch took out his pocket knife and cut a small hole in the bottom of the bag. A few of the other officers leaned in to get a closer look. The two detectives brought their faces next to the opening and peered inside. They saw several sticks of dynamite tied together with a piece of cloth. This was no hoax. Lynch sighed, then told Socha, quote, It's the business. Those were his last words. The bomb detonated. The explosion ripped through the detectives' bodies, flinging them backwards. Socha flew several yards to the fence, landing in a heap on the grass. The force of the blast pummeled nearby officers, too, throwing them to the ground and making their ears ring. The dynamite had also been loaded with nails and shrapnel. 
They shot out from the bag and lodged in the officers' bodies. Windows shattered at the nearby Polish restaurant. Dirt and grass rained down from the sky, coating everything in soil. Patrons covered their heads and sprinted away. When they heard the blast, nearby police rushed to the scene. But across the park, visitors didn't even wince. They were too busy watching another set of blasts that celebrated the country, the 4th of July fireworks. Eventually, the last of the debris fell to earth and a cloud of thick smoke covered the field. One of the detectives who'd been on the scene, Fred Morlock, dragged himself to his feet and surveyed the area. The blast had blown the foliage off of a nearby maple tree. Hundreds of leaves swirled in the wind. Where the package used to be, Morlock now saw a huge smoldering crater. Two officers crawled away from it on their hands and knees, their backs smoking. Their uniforms were in tatters and their legs were mangled. Other officers lay on the ground, moaning and screaming in pain. One tried to stand, but collapsed. Morlock sobbed and vomited into the weeds. The gruesome scene overwhelmed him, but when he looked up, he saw something that made it worse. Freddy Socha lay at the fence line. The explosion had scorched his body and torn right through him, likely killing him instantly. Morlock found Lynch next to the crater. The blast had shot him straight off the ground. Like Socha, he was dead as soon as the bomb went off. The two detectives should have had the day off, but they'd answered Pike's call. At the fair billed as a vision of peace, they'd instead lost their lives. That evening, a police detail arrived at Joe Lynch's door and told his wife the news. The thing Easter feared most had come true. She was devastated, but she knew she had to be strong for her daughter. In Essie's weakened state, it might have been too much to know her father was gone. Instead of black morning clothes, Easter donned a simple brown dress and drove to the hospital. As soon as she walked into Essie's room, the girl asked where her dad was. Easter mustered a smile and said he was on business at the World's Fair. For the time being, she left it at that. As Lynch's widow struggled with her grief, the authorities mounted an investigation. Lieutenant Pike and Police Commissioner Louis Valentine arrived on the scene within minutes of the explosion. Pike stared down at the charred remains of his detectives. This couldn't stand. Somebody had to pay. Pike ordered his men to gather every single scrap of evidence they could find. The officers got to work at once, combing the field for shrapnel and debris. Any clue of who might have done this. They gathered nails, pieces of the bag, and clothing from the wounded officers. Later that night, they uncovered their first major clue. One of the officers located a small brass cogwheel, exactly the kind of instrument one would find in an alarm clock. They sent it to the crime lab for analysis. The scientists concluded it belonged to an eight-day Ingram clock, a device that only needs to be wound every eight days. Some experts believed this was the reason it didn't go off for at least 30 hours, but the police couldn't be sure. 
Commissioner Valentine still had no hard leads and he knew he needed to do something. So he ordered his detectives to round up any agitators who supported the Nazi cause, like members of the German-American Bund. The bomb had been placed at the British Pavilion. With England at war with Germany, Nazis might have targeted the building to strike a blow against their enemy. After lengthy but fruitless interviews, two Bund members eventually pointed detectives toward a Nazi sympathizer named Caesar Kroger. On July 6th, just two days after the bombing, Kroger let police into his apartment for a search. Immediately, they spotted a massive world map on his wall. Kroger had stuck pins in different U.S. cities. He claimed they all had high numbers of communist supporters, but the detectives didn't believe him. They thought they were targets. Owning a map wasn't a crime. But one of the officers slid open Kroger's desk drawer, revealing a copy of Mein Kampf. And in the back of the drawer, tucked behind the book, two German Luger pistols. The authorities had seen enough. They arrested Kroger for illegal possession of firearms and began building their case against him for the World's Fair bombing. For days, the police engaged Kroger in what they dubbed hard interrogation, But no matter what they tried, they couldn't connect him or the Bund to the attack. They were back at square one and running out of time. While the investigation sputtered, bomb threats plagued the city. Police phones became overrun with reports of suspicious packages in public places. Hotels received hundreds of cancellations from frightened tourists. At one point, An anonymous voice even threatened to destroy the city's gas supply. While these threats didn't amount to anything, weeks passed without an arrest, and investigators still had no leads. Desperate and out of options, the city voted to offer a $25,000 reward to anyone who had valuable information. And the police union put up another $1,000 on top of that. In total, the reward would have amounted to over $500,000 in 2022. Despite the lavish prize, nobody offered anything of use. And countless man-hours had left Pike and Valentine no closer to finding the people who killed their two beloved detectives. On July 8th and 9th, thousands of New Yorkers gathered to honor Joe Lynch and Freddie Socha. The memorial attendees included police officers, firemen, and even celebrities like Babe Ruth. A procession followed their caskets through the city, and a 110-piece band played a tribute to the fallen heroes. Socha's and Lynch's families likely felt solace in the outpouring of gratitude, but none of it would bring them back. That day, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia privately pleaded with police to solve this case. He made it clear it was a top priority. However, over the next month, the war in Europe dominated the news. The public grew transfixed with headlines about invasions and bombings that took the lives of thousands, not just two. The search for the World's Fair bombers faded from the city's consciousness. That is until a month later. 
One night in early August, a night watchman patrolled the halls of the British Pavilion. In the days after the bombing, he'd been a bit jumpy on the graveyard shift. But a month had passed, and he'd never found anything out of the ordinary. He shined his flashlight from corner to corner. Then he settled the beam of light on a small object sitting on a window ledge. A bundle of red cloth folded into a ball. It was placed just 15 feet from the fan room where the bomb had been found in early July. The watchman's heart thumped against his chest. He inched closer and closer. Then he reached out and took hold of the material. He sighed with relief. It was just a piece of fabric. But as he unfurled the cloth, a swastika stared back at him. What he held in his hand was a Nazi flag. When the public heard about the discovery, panic ensued, and detectives started to wonder if the bomber was back. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time with part two of the New York World's Fair bombing. For more information on the World's Fair bombing, amongst the many sources we used, we found James Morrow's book, Twilight at the World of Tomorrow, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Alex Bernard, edited by Ben Caro and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. (laughs) 